If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so you can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Greetings, one and all. Today, I have special guest Jerry McMullen with me from the worst comic podcast ever, and we talk about Star Wars today on Soundtrack Alley, the podcast. Welcome to the show. I am your host, Randy Andrews, and I have special guest Jerry McMullen from the Worst Comic Podcast ever with me today. Hello, Jerry. It's nice to have you on the show. Hi, Randy. Thank you for inviting me. I have been a big fan of your show ever since episode one. Uh, I love your format. I love getting the insights into the soundtracks. I mean, there's a lot, so many of the time, so much of the time. You hear the soundtracks, but you don't always pay that close of attention. I think you're more focused on watching the movie, and mm-hmm. you don't really realize how important the soundtracks are to a movie until you pull back and listen to the music separately and maybe go back and watch a movie again a second time, which uh, your podcast has encouraged me to go do. Yeah, I have found that as I've went through, it's made me more aware of the soundtrack, even of films that I'm not really used to appreciating. Mm -hmm. Like the second episode, Lawrence of Arabia, uh, it's such a long movie. It's four hours long. And it's hard to think about just the film itself. But then when you add the music, you find it has just a whole nother beautiful layer of sound that you never thought that it was there so yeah and that was actually a movie that had a they actually used to have intermissions in movies for those longer ones because of having to change the reels out in the projection rooms and so uh that's that's definitely a movie you need to take a a little 10 15 minute break during the middle uh just in order to make it all the way through yeah yeah exactly so star wars um a new hope uh, is one of my favorite movies. It's on my top 10 list for top 10 movies of all time. I would, um, I would have it in my mind as well. I, I was actually thinking about it this morning. I think this is probably the movie I have watched the most times. Yeah, I would have to agree with you. 
and I've probably owned it the most times in so many different formats. I, I think the first time I got it, I actually taped it off of HBO in the early 80s. I had a, I went through at least three different VHS sets. I've got it on Blu-ray now, mm-hmm. so um, Lucas keeps finding a way to resell us the same thing over and over. And <laughs> you know what? I keep buying the same thing over and over. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's just a influential movie, personal experience. My mom would have to say that Star Wars kind of influenced my love of science fiction because they took me to Star Wars when I was a baby. Okay. And they went to see it at uh, the Indian Hills Theater here in Omaha. And that movie theater was a very specific type of theater. It had what you would call a cinemascope screen. Mm -hmm. It was very unusual. Uh, They only made so many, well, projection films for that screen specifically. Sure. Because it was so long. Yeah. Uh, the, the screen was so long, and they couldn't just do a normal movie on it. Yeah. Do, offhand, do you remember where Indian Hills was? It was right off of 90th, like between 85th and 90th of Dodge, Dodge Street in Omaha. Okay, yeah. And um, now there's just a Methodist Hospital office mm-hmm. building there. Yeah. And I, I grew up in Omaha. And I'm oh, okay. familiar with that area. And uh, I live just a little bit to the south of that area. I remember going to see Star Wars. There was a theater off of 84th and Center. Mm-hmm. And that's where I saw all the big movies growing up. I saw... Star Wars, I saw Empire, I saw Raiders, uh, E.T., I mean, all of those big ones from the 70s and 80s, that's the theater that we went to to go see them. So uh, I actually remember uh, my, my dad, God bless him, he had to, he had to sit through a lot of movies with <laughs> me, but uh, we were actually waiting to see Star Trek The Motion Picture, uh-huh. and our movie got of course, back then, they really didn't have a lobby area. You actually had to wait outside and wait, you know, lines formed around the building uh, waiting to get in. And Star Trek, the motion picture opened in December, and a car had hit a power pole or something, and the theater lost power. And so we were stuck outside for like an extra hour Wow! before we could get in to see our showing. But, uh, yeah, I love that theater, and it's it's funny how you have those memories of that childhood theater like that, and they stick with you all the way through. Yeah, it really does. Um, that theater just was an amazing theater. It had a really amazing sound quality. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had, like I, in 1996, I went to see Twister. Yes, and uh, you could hear the debris behind you. And mm-hmm. there were no speakers behind you in that theater. The acoustics were so good that you could hear the uh, debris behind you and the wind and the sounds behind you. And even when uh, Star Wars came out for the special edition, I went to see it there at Indian Hills. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it just was an amazing experience, and Star Wars is just 
one of those pieces of history that uh, will never go away. And um, I have found that in my research for uh, just looking at the different uh, actors and how they reacted to uh, the new movie of what it was and how it was to be filmed. Like when we think about C-3PO and mm -hmm. Anthony Daniels, he initially, he had no interest in the movie. Uh, and he only agreed to meet George Lucas uh, just to be polite. And almost immediately, Dan Anthony Daniels, he was intrigued by Ralph McQuarrie's art for C-3PO. Yes. The concept art that he did for for everything, and he really did that for like all of the movies. Exactly. Before they went into production. According to the notes that I have, that he said that he believed it was a, the major reason why he selected, or he was selected, to be C-3PO. And why some other people just didn't meet the standard. And um, it just, it changed his opinion of this new type of way of filming and new genre that he hadn't ever experienced before. And it just really was an interesting uh, way of looking at uh, just even Anthony Daniels. Absolutely. You know, when the, when the movies came out, it was obviously well before the internet. And so those Macquarie prints were some of the earliest teases of what was coming up in a movie. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you had no idea what was going to be coming out. There was no no spoilers going on at that time. I mean, there was a. I remember for Empire, there was a a scene where like you saw Vader and Luke battling, but Luke was wearing like some kind of like oxygen mask or tank. And yeah, I, my mind was just blown away, thinking, "All right, how do you fight a battle like that?" And just trying to imagine the possibilities. Yeah, it. Ralph McQuarrie kind of fueled the imagination uh, for Star Wars. It just, it was astounding, really. Mm -hmm. I found that some of the actors, such as Carrie Fisher or Mark Hamill, or even um, David Prowse and even uh, Harrison Ford, I have four different, like, types of notes on... For instance, Harrison Ford, he didn't learn his lines for the uh, intercom conversation when they were in the cell block. Yes. He just did it and made it sound so spontaneous. And my wife and I, we were reenacting that together because we were, we were laughing about it because it was so influential because he made it sound so conversational and yet so so perfect for yeah. the scene we're all fine here now how are you mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh that was just like one of the facts i you know i didn't even realize that he just kind of ad-libbed with that yeah that was kind of his style or his method especially back then was mm -hmm. uh just kind of wean it and make it sound a little more natural yeah Exactly. Another actor, well, David Prowse, um, who was in the Darth Vader suit. Yeah. 
uh, yeah, he was uh, kind of disgruntled uh, more than 20 years after the film was released because his voice was replaced by James Earl Jones. Mm -hmm. And I guess in an interview, he had um, claimed that he was a victim of reverse racism because the cast had no black members. And the studio was worried they would lose a significant slice of the audience. However, James Earl Jones, he wasn't even credited in the original film. So no one even knew that there was a black actor voicing Darth Vader. Yeah. Uh, David Prowse has a very high-pitched voice. Okay. And if, if you listen to any of the old uh, original filming where he was doing the dialogue, it sounds so freakish. I mean, it, it doesn't <laughs> sound right. You need yeah. a deep-sounding voice. And I know David Prowse is probably upset for just having walked around in the movies for all these years, but I also think he collected a lot of money from those movies. Oh, so yeah, yeah. You can't complain too much uh, if his voice wasn't in there. But the simple fact that so much of Darth Vader is built around that voice... Yeah. James Earl Jones. And uh, I don't think the movie would nearly been as successful. It would still have done bonkers, but mm -hmm. the, uh, a high-pitched Darth Vader would not have flown as this force of evil no. that, that's out to control the galaxy. Not at all. Yeah. Um, it just, you know, it was one of those pieces of information that I was like, wow, I... I didn't realize that he felt so strongly about, you know, not being voiced in the film. It's like, well, think about it. One of the unique things I found was, uh, you know, how there are stunt doubles for many films. And one scene that they didn't use stunt doubles for was when Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher... Fisher uh, swung across that uh, the chasm. The chasm, yeah. They swung across, and they performed the stunt themselves. Did it all in one take, and I thought I was like, wow. I mean, you know, they they took a risk there, but of course they weren't very high off off the ground. But no. it made it appear that way. Sure. <laughs> so one of the other facts i found it was really interesting that the banthas in the movie they were they were actually asian elephants dressed in a costume of fur and even fake horns and they even taught the elephants to put their trunk into their mouth mm -hmm. so it wouldn't hang down and interesting um some of them they wow. had to be removed from the set several times wow. because of the extreme heat of where those scenes were filmed in Death Valley. Well, were those in Death Valley or Tunisia? No, those of... those were actually done in Death Valley. Okay. Yeah. Because I know, like the the Lars Homestead and all, that's actually over in Tunisia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there was actually just a a project a couple of years ago to save or reclaim the that set because it had pretty much been abandoned and was just falling apart due to the weather and 
this crew went in and basically rebuilt it up and made it back into like a almost like a tourist attraction mm-hmm. yeah ex- exactly there have been so many unique facts about the film you know you think about uh all the things you hear about you know for star wars and you get into like the scene with the stormtroopers coming into the that control room and the one stormtrooper hits his head on the on the door and that's like one of those common retrospective facts that they just decided to leave it in the film i found that most even with the stormtroopers themselves most of them were left-handed uh because of the weapons that were constructed okay and the weapons were actually based upon a real weapon where the magazine was on the left side of the weapon. So the construction caused it to hit the stormtrooper's chest. And so they had to switch the grip of the weapon and made them all look left-handed. Yeah. And I found that really interesting. And also, you know, the whole controversy with the shootout between Han Solo and Greedo uh in the cantina how many debated that greedo shot first before solo and vice versa and of course we know han shot first it doesn't matter (laughs) how much they digitally change it han still shot first and we can really appreciate that that's that's why i keep one of my sets of vhs tapes still yeah (laughs) because it just proves that yep han solo shot first uh and then you know going back to ralph mcquarrie i mean his conceptual art was so influential that you think about the darth vader design i mean that's how they came up with darth vader's suit it was Mm -hmm. designed by Ralph McQuarrie, who was even concerned about the character being able to breathe while he was traveling in his spaceship. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. If you talk to like comic book artists and such, I, the Darth Vader costume is very hard to draw. Yeah, I, I would mean, imagine. You really need to have you know the like reference in front of you when you're drawing it, or else it just looks horrendous i mean there's very few artists that i know of that can draw it you know off of memory and have it come out looking accurate yeah the uh (laughs) even i myself i have drawn my own darth vader and it just doesn't look right (laughs) (laughs) i even had a reference and it just doesn't look right so but uh, the look of the suit was based upon robes worn by the Bedouin warriors. I like the fact that George Lucas had ILM watch archival footage of the World War II dogfights mm-hmm. to have the references for the Death Star scene. Yeah. Well, that... I mean, Lucas is an old-school film fanatic. Mm-hmm. Um, and he went through the, the film school out in L.A. And, um, but, I mean, the, the whole concept of Star Wars is a homage to the 1940s and 50s serials, whether they be 
westerns or war movies. I mean, it was it was kind of like telling these little story arcs and building to a, a climactic point, and then coming back down, and then building up to the next climatic point. Uh, so it's it it very much feels like a serial where you could break that movie up into like six or seven pieces and go once a week to watch something and and be hooked on it and want to come back again the next week to see what's going to happen. I found it really unique that, you know, they, they use that uh, to give frames of reference. uh, So that way things would look kind of more authentic in a way uh, to be a science fiction film but mm-hmm. still have some relation to the modern world. It just was astounding to me, you know, the different ways they made the footage, like uh, doing the Dystroflex motion-controlled camera, mm-hmm. and how when they would program that, they could program it to actually film on a matte painting so that way it would look even more than just a painting but more like that you're filming a scene Mm -hmm. of a background or whatever and then you have your actors come in and play their parts you know you started this conversation talking about how influential star wars is as a film and this is one of those areas i mean because prior to that special effects were like horrendous Mm -hmm. if you go back and watch movies prior to star wars i mean maybe the most special effect type movie might have been like 2001 a space odyssey Mm -hmm. uh but money just wasn't put into special effects to make it look realistic they they would find ways to to change the story around or tell the story without actually having to show those type of scenes or include that within the movie and so much of Star Wars was just literally, how can we make this work? And let's let's get creative and find ways to do it. You know, the Death Star models that they built, they basically uh, scavenged around with little uh, model kits of battleships and planes and all that and used parts from one set and another to build up the Death Star and the other ships. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that the the Death Star trench was actually a full scale model built in the London studio, so they could actually roll a camera down to get the get the view of it as you're flying along and inside the view from like Luke's Edswing. Yeah, uh, it was just I mean they were creatively going out and hitting things and recording the sounds just to kind of get different sounds to use within the within the movie i want to say like the blaster fire is the sound of like hitting a pipe against a uh, a tension support cable on a bridge yeah i mean it's things like that that you would never think of but recording that sound and then looping it into the film gives it a whole new layer Mm -hmm. i found that you know with george lucas he used so many influences from other things like other films um like you had talked about the old 1950s serials and things like that such as flash gordon or buck rogers frank herbert's dune J.R.R. tolkien's lord of the rings 
the Kurosawa films, The Hidden Fortress. Of that film, it was like dealing with a famous warrior and a princess who needed to move, be moved safely to allied territory from being pursued by hostiles. And it kind of served as the inspiration for the whole main story of A New Hope. And just, you know, seeing that George Lucas had uh, the Admiral uh, refer in the film to this rebel base as their hidden fortress rather than a, you know, hidden base to kind of give it more of a archaic flair and just the the different scenes that were used the the Mayan temple that was used for the base on Yavin 4 um that was really amazing i mean just the different film locations that George Lucas used with Tunisia and getting that just perfect sunrise or sunset whichever it one it was to where you had the optical illusion of two suns. Yeah, that two sun image is very striking. I know uh, my podcast partner Colin still gets all all crazy over that image, and just he grins like a little five year old kid seeing that that shot again for the first time every time he watches it. So yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> also, you know, it's really impressive how they were really setting the standard for even building sets, building equipment, building machines, uh, such as the Millennium Falcon. According to, I think, one of the builders for one of the sets, Roger Christian, I think it was, he said that it was the Millennium Falcon was the most difficult item to build. He wanted the interior to look kind of like a submarine. And he he found scrap airplane metal that no one wanted to use those days and bought it. Like he bought those pieces. And then he began his creation process by breaking down these jet engines into scrap pieces, giving him the chance to stick it in the set in a specific way uh, and I guess it it took him several weeks to finish the chess set which he described as the most encrusted set in the hold of the Falcon so you can see they spent a lot of time developing these models these sets these massively large areas to be used not only once, but several times, because they brought back the Millennium Falcon and brought you clear up to now with The Force Awakens, giving us the interior of the Falcon and knowing that's the same model, that's the same set that they used from the original. Yeah, yeah, it was most of that, most of like the Death Star scenes, the Falcon, all that, those were set up on, I believe, a sound studio over in London, mm-hmm. uh, that so much of the movie was filmed there. And if you look if you look at the cast, almost all the Imperials were of British descent. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they all had that, 
that English accent to them as they were speaking. And you even got some of that with, with Alec Guinness's uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi. But as we've later learned, getting the, the full backstory over the years uh, to find his ties to everything. But um, it was very much, you know, the, the rebels were cast almost as Americans and the, and the empire, the people from Great Britain were cast as the empire just mm-hmm. so that there was a, a definitive difference in their speaking. Yeah. As even with um, Grand Moff Tarkin, uh, Peter Cushing, he was actually, he was actually liked. I mean, Carrie Fisher said that he was one of the most endearing, charming, polite, and humorous people on the set. Mm-hmm. And they got along so well that she had an even really hard time doing her scenes as if she hated him. Yeah. Uh, because he was so likable and so easy to work with. Mm. And it just, it cracked me up, you know, yeah. it just really You'll notice that the scenes with Grand Moff Tarkin, most of them are filmed from the waist up. Uh, he complained about the, the boots of the uniform hurting his feet. Mm-hmm. And so most of the times that they were filming him, he was actually in his slippers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's just hilarious, because it's like they wouldn't need to see his feet all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so, um... When I thought about bringing you on, I was thinking about uh, your ties to comics, your your connections to the comic industry. Um, What have you found to be really helpful in thinking about the movie, but then how does it transition when you look at the history of the Star Wars comic? You know, the Star Wars comic is holds a very unique place in history. Um, first of all, you got to tell part of the backstory. You know, Lucas had been shopping Star Wars around for years uh, before he finally got a studio to agree to, to help release the film and all of that. The studios basically gave him all of the merchandise rights. Mm-hmm. They, they didn't want them. They didn't think that there was any merchandise to be had with this movie. So he controlled everything, and one of the things that he opted was, was let's create a comic book, and he shopped the idea of the comic around to a bunch of the different publishers, and finally Marvel, uh, specifically Roy Thomas, was really intrigued by this by this story and thought it could be used as a comic, and um, they, they signed a deal with Lucasfilm in 1976 and started working off early drafts to create a comic to go along with the movie. And initially, it was just going to be a six-issue comic book series adapting the movie. Mm -hmm. Well, the comics sold like crazy. I mean, Marvel was in... That was a period of time where Marvel and the industry was struggling some, but Marvel was in dire shapes. And they, they talk how the Star Wars comic book saved Marvel in the in the late 1970s Mm -hmm. that they were selling so many star wars comics compared to any of their other books at that time and so if you look at original copies of those comics every extra page that wasn't comic related quickly got put in made into like a house ad for another book Mm -hmm. because they knew that they were getting 
readers on that comic that weren't reading any other comics and they, they want to get other people reading. Now, part of the reason why they had so many people reading these comics, there was nothing else out there for Star Wars. Yeah. I mean, there was a couple of paperback novels that came out, like Splinter of the, of the Mind's Eye and yep. Han Solo at Star's End, uh, that just kind of, I mean, it was like blood in the water to sharks. I mean, mm-hmm. if you saw something with Star Wars, you were buying it because there was nothing else to go along to support it. So people were buying the comic, telling the Star Wars story. But Marvel had their hands tied by Lucasfilm with all of this. You know, when Marvel said went to Lucasfilm and said, hey, we'd kind of like to keep telling stories and keep this comic series going. They're like, okay, that's fine, but you can't have Luke battle Darth Vader. You can't have them meet up with Darth Vader. You can't tell this story, this story, this story. You can't go to this type place or this type place because they were trying to protect their movies yeah. coming out. Yeah. So Marvel really kind of had to tell their stories blind. So, uh, you know, the first major story arc. Well, except for a few facts of knowing where they couldn't go to. Yeah. Yeah. But really, you know, like the first major story arc after the initial adaption of it was almost like a retelling of the star Wars where Han Solo and this group of ragged rebels fight off a local government on this backwater planet. Uh, and there's a little kid that looks a lot like Luke Skywalker and a lady that kind of reminds Han of Princess Leia. And it was just funny. And it wasn't until later on that, you know, Marvel started kind of trying to, all right, let's look at the, the Imperials and let's expand on that. And let's go back and tell a story about Obi-Wan Kenobi and, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. So that period between Star Wars and Empire, some of those stories are a little rough. Yeah. But by the same token, that was the only Star Wars stories you were getting on a monthly basis. So exactly, people were eating them up. You know, when Empire came out, again, you had more direction. Yep. But you couldn't tell current stories involving Han Solo. Nope. And you couldn't actually have them rescue Han Solo because you knew that that was going to be safe for Return of the Jedi. So yeah, how do you tell stories for three years without using Han Solo? Well. We can use them in flashback type stories and we can tell these type of stories. They even had a two part story that was an unused John Carter warlord of Mars story, but adapted for star Wars, uh, using princess Leia and the empire and such. Uh, now there that are some I didn't really, know. <laughs> some really good stories told in this time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to be fair, there's some clunkers, but considering that all these stories were done with, you know, their hands tied as to what they could or couldn't do. Um, I think there's Marvel did a great job. The, the thing that hurt Marvel is that once return of the Jedi came out, they had no direction from Lucasfilm Mm -hmm. because Lucasfilm really didn't know what they were going to do. And they basically just said, well, tell some stories, but you can't use Darth Vader anymore. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the, the book drifted around for a couple of years after Return of the Jedi before being canceled in uh, 86. Uh, two years ago at Omaha Comic Con, Cynthia Martin was there, who was uh, got her start working on the Star Wars comic in that period. And she was so much fun to talk to. Uh, she's a local up there in the Omaha area. And 
if ever you get a chance to meet her, you should check her out. So. Oh, okay, I'll have to do that. I found that, you know, with Dark Horse taking over the reins of mm-hmm. Star Wars and after they were able to have clear, uh, you know, creative license to kind of go their own direction and go in the way of how the books were going. Yep. Like the book industry just flooded the market with yes. Star Wars books and it it had its entire timeline. It had the Old Republic. It had the New Republic. It had stories that you never thought possible. And it was its own expanded universe of Star Wars. Yes. Um, and then when they finally, let's see, in 2013, they anthologized the... Um, original 1973 draft of the star wars yes where you have a different storyline in a way because luke is an old general and his pupil is a young star killer mm-hmm. and um it was adapted into a comic book by Jonathan Rensler, Mike Mayhew, and Nick Runge. And that just, you know, exploded a whole different type of story. And they couldn't, they, they didn't know really how they were going to use the name Starkiller until, of course, they used it in uh, The Force Awakens. Yeah. And so it was a really interesting well-written and well-drawn uh, book uh, that Dark Horse had done, and this was before uh, Disney bought Marvel. And it was it, it came out right around that same time that that Disney had made the acquisition. Yeah, uh, and it was based off of Lucas's original screenplay for the movie. Mm-hmm. Eight uh, issues, and it had even a sketchbook that you could buy separately as its individual comic. And it just was astounding that it was totally different from what the movies developed into. Yes. Um, You know, all all stories go along a path much like the movies do themselves. And um, I enjoyed reading the Star Wars, but I'm glad the story changed around to be what we eventually got in 1977 yeah exactly and you know bringing it back to how that movie really is and like different comical things that would happen the scene with the trash compactor and how there's uh, mark hamill being luke skywalker he was so intense in filming the scene that he uh, he got pulled under, of course, by that creature that was in the trash compactor. Mm-hmm. He burst a blood vessel in his eye. <laughs> and so after that, the next scene that was filmed, uh, I guess, of course, they don't do all the scenes chronologically, but the next sure. scene was where he was filmed as receiving the medals 
you know, they were receiving their medals for winning against the Empire. And Mark Hamill, he had to do a lot of grinning in order to keep that big red spot on his eye from being noticeable. (laughs) And I found that really funny and interesting because it's like, you would have never thought that, you know, these actors would have developed certain things that happened. And it's like, oh, I never noticed that before. Yeah. And then uh, the whole thing with Carrie Fisher, she wasn't able to wear a bra underneath her costume during filming. Mm-hmm. Um, George Lucas had ordered her breast held down with gaffer's tape, and Carrie Fisher was informed that there was no underwear in space. But it was <laughs> it was more likely an explanation that was uh, Lucas wanted the movie to be good, clean, fun without the jiggle action popular especially on TV during um, the liberated 70s. And so he, of course, tried to make amends by attempting to desexualize Carrie Fisher's figure by having her wear the uh, metal bikini in Return of the Jedi. Yeah. But one of the things... I'm sorry. uh, One of the things I was thinking about in regard to her original outfit, she thought that her... uh, her outfit that she had to wear in Star Wars wasn't revealing enough. I thought it was really funny because when she saw the um, original posters done by the brothers Hildebrandt, yes, um, she was shown as her outfit being uh, curvy and voluptuous and seductive and Uh, much like those posters and she thought that that was how her character was going to be portrayed but uh (laughs) she was the dress had a slit up to the waist so that the leg could be revealed and Mm -hmm. it's definitely interesting you know i've i've seen numerous interviews with lucas and he has thought so long and hard about every single detail of the story i mean if you ask him why a certain machine sounds like it does. I mean, he'll go into the mechanics of that vehicle to explain why it makes those noises or the back history of an alien race or a particular character. I mean, he's got everything worked out in his head. Lucas was definitely the, the, the creative mind behind. I mean, the, the simple fact that he gave over director control for Empire and Return of the Jedi speaks so much. Uh, and both of those movies were, I think, were better served having other directors mm-hmm. in place. Yeah. But I think for the initial A New Hope, I mean, that is very much a, a simple story. Good versus evil. Good guys wear black or dark colors. The good guys wear white. The Han Solo, we don't know if he's good or bad. He wears both. Mm-hmm. You know, it. He was definitely trying to tell a simple good versus evil type story. Yeah. He had everything planned out from day one. Yep. It was just really unique. I'd like to talk about a few actual soundtrack points. Absolutely. Uh, That's the whole point why we're here. Exactly. Let's talk Um, the music. I mean, we haven't even mentioned John Williams yet. Yeah. John Williams is the reason Star Wars is so popular and actually the movie would have been far different had George Lucas not 
taken the suggestion from Steven Spielberg to use John Williams. Mm -hmm. Because Steven Spielberg had been working on Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And that episode of my podcast uh, with Eric Woods, who is from Cinematic Sound Radio, uh, will be on, will be up on December 30th of this month. Also, Spielberg had used John Williams for Jaws. Yes. Which came out in 75, I think. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, And, I mean, that... That Jaws theme is so distinctive. I mean, you hear that first, but um, and you you know exactly what that theme is. Exactly. Um, and that that is kind of the signature for a John Williams composition, is that you know kind of like the old name that tune mm-hmm. game show. It only takes about four or five notes, and you can tell what piece it is, whether it's Star Wars or the the theme for Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., Superman the movie. I mean, all of those movies in that era with William's score on it are so distinctive and so memorable. And I it, I think that definitely helped lead to the success of the movie. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I found that originally George Lucas was going to use, like, existing classical music. Uh, like what Stanley Kubrick had used for 2001, A Space Odyssey. But that was before Steven Spielberg introduced him to John Williams. And so with them, Lucas and Williams, they collaborated on agreeing to have a kind of classical 19th century uh, romantic music style uh, for the score. And since the movie would be shown to you know see worlds that had never been seen before and the music would serve as that emotional anchor for the audience to relate even to the film i found that the music of by john williams for uh, star wars a new hope is ranked as number one of the AFI's 100 Years of Film Scores. I thought that really cool. Yeah, it, it, it is so memorable. And last year, with the release of Episode 7, The Force Awakens, uh, because this was the first film that Disney was putting out on mm-hmm. the Star Wars franchise. And it was no longer tied or being distributed by 20th Century Fox. So this was the first movie that didn't open with the 20th Century Fox fanfare. Yes. And people were beside themselves. It was so quiet. It It was just quiet. And they need, what they really need to do is kind of give you kind of a uh, introduction or Mm -hmm. whoever is doing the next film, you know, you, you want some kind of noise or some introduction to say look this is a star wars movie yeah it had just that 20th century fox had a great deal of influence on you know how people perceived it that they knew that if they heard that they were gonna get a john williams score they knew that that was how he was going to bring it about when you were young, did you ever have any of the Star Wars record story? 
I I know I had some. I actually still have, and these are on cassettes. Mm-hmm. The the radio adaptions. Oh, okay. Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember my school library had a story record that I would check out at least every other month. It seemed like there for a while, and I would bring that home to listen to. Um, you know, I had the comics, I had the toys, I had everything. I know in the early 1990s, during one of those times in college where I think, oh yeah, I'm going to join Columbia House and get eight CDs for a penny. Mm-hmm. Um, I had picked up, and I've, I've got it here in my hand still, it's uh, John Williams conducts John Williams' The Star Wars Trilogy. <laughs> it's kind of viewed as the Skywalker Symphony, and basically yeah. it's it's 13 tracks from uh, episodes four, five, and six. So mm-hmm. you kind of get like the best of each movie. And I've just always carried that with me ever since. And uh, I was actually re-listening to it today as I was driving around with my dad uh, before coming in uh, to the podcast recording today. Uh, I actually rewatched A New Hope yesterday. Mm-hmm. And I was amazed. I, I mean, yes, I know the music and I've, We've heard this music for almost 40 years now, but I was really amazed just how much music is in the movie. Yes. That there's times when it's playing under the dialogue and you don't, you don't even realize it until you're actually looking for it. Mm-hmm. I, I would probably say maybe 60% or 65% of the movie, there is music in the background, Yeah, whether you realize it or not. I mean, I was just really shocked. I I hadn't picked up on just how prominent it is unless you're really listening for it. Especially the first, almost the first 30 minutes of the movie, there is almost constant music that whole time. Yeah, and a lot of the cues that were used, that John Williams used, he, he had them blend together. Like, you you get the scene of the rebel ship being attacked and mm-hmm. the whole scene of them coming onto the ship and uh the droids going down to the planet the droids separating and going in two separate directions uh yeah. that whole choice of music flowed from one to another and it was almost no separation mm-hmm. of sound uh between each and so you can see that John Williams really was telling a story through the music. I just always appreciated how with Star Wars you can listen to the score of any one of the movies and really see where these themes would begin. And even when John Williams went back to be doing the prequel trilogy, uh, I mean, that's... some point down the line I will be reviewing some of these scores but the whole idea that his music started very softly and Mm -hmm. there were elements of uh, the Imperial March in the the Phantom Menace and you can't tell until you listen to the soundtrack or even stay to the final part of the credits and you hear that theme carefully woven through Anakin's theme. And I just found that astounding and 
really made me appreciate John Williams' music that much more. Sure. So these are, you know, some of the unique facts about uh, you have real emotion in John Williams' music. And um, so I've got a few cues I'd like to play uh, today. Um, one of them, the very first I'd like to play is called Imperial Attack. And you can see how John Williams brings to life the Imperial Army and its fight against the rebels and how they are and how even in this film you don't get the Imperial March, but you get something that's a start and you see how they are and what they are and uh, how the music plays a key role into their, so to speak, mythology. Uh, so I'd like to play now uh, Imperial Attack.
All right, uh, the next cue that I would like to play is called Tales of a Jedi Knight and Learn About the Force. Now, I also would like to play the piece that goes right after this cue. It's called Burning Homestead. Now, what kind of feelings, before I play this, what kind of feelings <laughs> did you get when you watched the scene where Luke drives up in his land speeder to the home of Owen Lars and Beru and sees their burnt skeletons? Yeah, the toast to young Colonan. Um, you know, the first time I watched this, I was seven. So I was just, I mean, it, I was just trying to absorb everything in. And I don't think I probably fully realized that the aunt and uncle were dead until after um, he meets up again with Obi-Wan and the droids and put two and two together. But, um, you know, it, it, it felt kind of like a, almost like a traditional fairy tale where Luke has finally been let go from the abusive or mean adoptive parents. I mean, it's his aunt and uncle. It's not his real parents. And, mm -hmm. uh, so it really feels, you know, almost along the lines of like Cinderella where she gets free from the, from the stepmother and can go off on her own now. And, um, you know, you, it's hard to say that characters are needed to die in order to advance the main character, but mm -hmm. I think that's what's happening here. Yeah, I would agree. And the idea that beforehand you get so much background into uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi's character of, you know, how he fought in the Clone Wars and uh, that he knew Luke's father and... Um, John Williams really gives us the mystery and the tragedy through these two cues. And it just, it brings that emotion really to your heart to see, oh my goodness, is he's just lost them. They, they were attacked by Imperial soldiers and it, it really draws on your heart to know that this is an emotional piece so what i'd like to do now is play tales of a jedi knight uh learn about the force and then it will i'll be having it weave right into burning homestead
So the final cue that I'd like to play is another combination of two tracks. This is going to be the Battle of Yavin as well as the Throne Room and End Titles. Now, when I think about these two pieces of music, I, I think of a grand finale. How do you feel about it, Jerry? A uh, grand finale is a good way to describe that. Uh, I've been to numerous weddings where people have used the throne room as their music to walk out of the church to. 
and it's it's a spectacular feeling, especially if you're part of the wedding party. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but it, I it have been. Really, yeah, it it really builds up, which is what the music should be doing. I mean, it it builds you up towards that climatic finish, and you know, you got the 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 big battle against the Empire and the Death Star, and um, the heroes come out of it just barely alive, but they they defeat the enemy and. Now we get the the recognition, the reward at the end, where they're recognized as heroes for the first time in their life, and mm-hmm. uh, it's it's such a, a it ends on such a positive note, and you know you compare and contrast it to the next film, Empire Strikes Back, which ends on such a down note, but when you realize that it's part of the trilogy and you're you're, you're building the beats of the story it works out perfect so Mm -hmm. yeah it just it's really amazing how uh the whole idea of these two tracks even the the tenseness and action of this the battle of yavin and the tense build-up of knowing how close the death star is coming to yavin 4 and uh how close the rebels are to destroying the death star and then you get darth vader coming in there and pounding down with that music and john williams uses those horns and that horn section so well in the scene and it's just phenomenal you know know, hindsight being 2020 why did the rebels just pack up and leave yavin (laughs) i I mean you know the empire is going to be coming you know they're tracking them I mean, in Empire Strikes Back, as soon as the Empires jump into the Hoth system, hey, it's time to go. Let's yeah. pack up. Let's get out of here. Yep. But with Yavin, oh, no, we'll just stay here and try to take on the, the battle station that has already destroyed Alderaan. No yeah. big deal. Why? Why? Why stay and fight? They, they should have been bugging out that whole time. Yeah, but so, they didn't. Anyway. But that's part of the enjoyment of the film. Yeah. So uh, I've really enjoyed having you on today. Thank you. I've enjoyed this too. Uh, It's been really nice to be able to talk with someone else about a beloved movie from my past. And I'm sure it's a beloved movie for you as well. Very much so. I'm, I'm old school in 1977. I saw it when it first came out. I was six or seven and it's been part of my life ever since Mm -hmm. yeah and mine too (laughs) really uh really from my birth (laughs) (laughs) so um now i'd like to play uh those two cues um battle of yavin and throne room end titles and i'd like to encourage you all who are listening to come back and be with me next time as I will be bringing the music of Alien uh, with my special guest, Tim Benson. Once again, he'll be back on my show. And so, happy listening.